There's a hell of a distance between wisecracking and wit. Wit has truth in it. Wisecracking is simply calisthenics with words. At any rate, when a subject is highly controversial, and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. I'm Michael Coyle, professor of English at Colgate University. And I'm Alan Swenson from the German department at Colgate University. And this is the fifth episode of our podcast series, Transatlantic Wisdom, sponsored by the America Zentrum in Hamburg. We've been talking in this series about the development of a distinctly modern form. What happens to the aphorism after... After the Germans get their hands on it in the 19th century, but particularly Nietzsche, and uh, so we've we've traced an arc from from Schlegel in Germany and and Blake in England, up to the, the present day, looking at 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 people like uh, Sarah Manguso. Alan, I was I was recently looking again at a at a piece that Adam Gopnik published in the New Yorker back in 2019. And he was reviewing a couple books about the aphorism. This is a, an academic field that's, that's really just beginning to develop. And here, still, the best work has been done by, by Germans. But why, Adam Gopnik asks, is spiritual wisdom found in fragmentary form more reliably than in extended dogma? What do you think of that question? What strikes me about it, in a way, is that it, um, I think it cheats. <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, it seems to be asking us why wisdom is found in fragmentary form rather than complete form or long form, but it inserts that term dogma, uh, which to me answers the question already that spiritual wisdom is going to be more likely found in a fragment than in a dogmatic piece. And if if that doesn't make much sense. I think it is an idea we've looked at again and again over these past four podcasts that uh, probably no one expressed it better than Schlegel. It is equally deadly for the spirit to have a system and to have none. It will thus have to resolve to combine both. And I think that his notion of having a system when that's all you've got when everything is system, that's dogma. It's the problem that Marxism fell into when it tried to understand everything through its own lens and ignored the particularity of experience. Well, nicely said, I think. But also, you know, Im implicit in this notion of, of dogma, and, and you're right, Gopnik cheats. He's a, he's a very skilled journalist, but he's a journalist different in kind from, from well, from, say, Krauss and Mencken, whom we were talking about last time dogma, this idea that there's a stable system that pre-exists us, mm -hmm. that's there whether we recognize it or not. And it seems to me that one of the things that follows from Nietzsche is this recognition that we are the, the makers of the systems in which we invest our beliefs. And 
what I find really powerful about the modern aphorism is this recognition that we can achieve things on the level of art, on the level of form, that we can't necessarily achieve in philosophy. It's not simply a matter of, of the intellect. It's about trying to create a, a form that, that touches us in a more comprehensive way, feeling and thought together. That's what art does, right? And the aphorism then, for me, isn't a, a distillation of philosophical insight. It's an artistic achievement. This gets us to an interesting point, and I think it's one of the places where we diverge a little bit. That that I think I, I my conviction is that it is in fact a a philosophical insight, but it's one that requires exactly what you just described: this tension between thought and feeling. And I think we've largely avoided scholars and looked instead at aphorisms themselves <laughs> in this. But there there is one. German scholar who write who wrote a lot about aphorisms that I think had some tremendous insights into this and and uh, on his Wikipedia page this is Gerhard Neumann uh, he was a professor of German uh, at a number of universities and his uh, web page makes the assertion that he, that he he always asserted that the aim of an aphorism was for thought certainty and feeling certainty to reciprocally destabilize each other. Mm. And that th this relationship, and in some ways he, he also expressed it in maybe more philosophical terms, that it, that it often is a tension between the general and the specific, that in this case the thought certainty would be the general, the, the big system, and feeling is the specificity and that this is so inherent in aphorisms that regardless of what authors call their short pieces what links them all is that this attitude towards knowledge seems to underlie them a conviction that we humans have no other choice than accept the fact that we do not have access to certain knowledge that knowledge exists somewhere between those two tensions, and, and we must embrace and keep both sides. Mm -hmm. Well, when we were talking the other day, I don't, sadly for me, I don't read German, and I haven't been able to read the Neumann book. I wish some enterprising graduate student would take this on as their, their, their dissertation. Translate the Neumann book for us. But uh, you were discussing one, one of Neumann's contributions, that is, his conviction that what What's important about the aphorism is the way in, in which it incorporates the situation in which one, quote unquote, knows into the act of knowing, right? Mm, yeah. I did translate that one line for you. Oh, do that again. <laughs> uh, this is uh, his conclusion towards the end of his introduction to this book on aphorisms. He says that the German aphorism that arises around 1800 takes on considerable significance the influence of which continues into the 20th century, with this discovery that what counts is incorporating the situation in which one knows into the mm -hmm. act of knowing mm -hmm. in all consciousness and rational precision. 
that there is no knowing in the sense of pure thought, that rather every knowing is always at once a grappling among manifold conditions. That's it. And it seems to me that, you know, grappling among manifold conditions is, is part of what makes the choice of form so important. Different forms shape knowledge in different ways. They come, you know, literary forms come with ideas about the significance of human experience built into them, right? You, you don't write a poem in the heroic couplets of the 18th century unless you, you think that the universe is built on, on reason and order and, and things are balanced and, and so on and so forth. Once you give up that idea, you, you end up writing something more like the, the rhapsodies or the odes of the romantic poets of the 19th century, right? So I think that what we get in the aphorism in Nietzsche and, and after Nietzsche is a, a supreme self-consciousness about this condition so that the Nietzschean aphorism is self-destabilizing or where Nietzsche produces aphorisms in sequence. They don't all line up like pieces in a puzzle so that we get one stable, coherent picture. And it's, it's that achievement that, that sets up the, the poetry of somebody like Wallace Stevens, where a, a single poem, we're going we're gonna to do more Stevens next, next time and I can't wait, you know, will we'll give us a, a metaphor and then say, or, and then give us a different metaphor, suggesting the first one was inadequate, but then give us a third and sometimes a fourth, like his, his great late poem, The Aurora's of Autumn, where he's, he's attempting the impossible thing of representing the northern lights, the aurora borealis, which is changing instant by instant. I think we're largely on the same page here. The one, one modification I'd like to make to that is just that I, I think that Nietzsche's aphorisms and virtually all of these aphorisms post eighteen aphorists post eighteen hundred are not just self destabilizing. I think that's where the critical thing it lies in Neumann, that there is a reciprocal destabilizing that is it it isn't just shooting down an idea, but rather <laughs> one idea reminding us that the other idea is more complex than that. That I think Crucial to aphorism, too, is it can't ever just be about intellectual fireworks or about uh, shooting down a big idea, that it actually is a constructive thing in a way. Nietzsche sees, I think this is what Nietzsche means by his playing off of one perspective against another, that he suggests that, in fact, we can get to a kind of objectivity almost by incorporating as many possible perspectives as we can. <laughs> but what we can't do is there is no one true perspective. Yeah. And I think maybe the, the, the differences between your take on this and mine is the, the last thing that you said, the, the idea that there is no one true perspective is where I put my emphasis. But it's certainly important to remember that Nietzsche didn't give up on the idea of truth. He just conceives it in terms differently than had his rational predecessors in the Enlightenment, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think in some senses he worries about excessive destabilization because Nietzsche sometimes, people who don't read Nietzsche 
but know him only indirectly, think of him as nihilistic. And Nietzsche was, in fact, oh. saw himself as doing everything he could to combat nihilism. It's extraordinary to me that that this is the, the common idea about Nietzsche, common among people who haven't read him. Yeah, this is what I find so thrilling about Nietzsche, because he understands without something to believe in, human beings shrivel up and die. We need something to get us out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I'd like to throw something in here, if I may, Michael, that I think will lead us into some of the things we want to do today. We're, we're going to look at a variety of aphorists, maybe that we wouldn't devote a whole podcast to, but one of the, one of the things that I think leads us there is, again, I'm going back to uh, Gerhard Neumann's book and his introduction, and he begins at his first line is, the great aphorists read as if they all knew each other well, writes <laughs> Elias Canetti, perhaps the most important German aphorist of this time. Mm. Apparently, there is a common stance in thought and form that connects these authors even across national boundaries, despite all their differences. And that's what he wants to try and do in this book, is to suggest that aphorism is very hard to define as a genre if you're trying to define it in formal terms, but there is a stance of thought and an attitude to the relationship, as you pointed out earlier, between form and thought. That does seem to make these aphorists sound to us as we read them as if they all knew each other well. Well, that's a really important observation, I, I think, and it, it tells us that the development of the modern aphorism isn't simply the, the product of some ingenious and very imaginative writers, but that the emergence of this as an important form, and I think it really is an important modernist form, is a reflection of, of where we are, collectively speaking, you know, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Yeah. You know, we have lots of evidence that the, the aphorism, this is part of what the journalist Adam Gopnik was writing about a couple of years ago, that this form is becoming more important. In the United States, there's a growing number of writers who are producing these, these very small books of aphorisms, people like Sarah Manguso. So, I hope that we can say more about the, the function of the, the form and how it, it relates to this distinctly modern, how to say, vision of what truth is and our relation to it. Maybe this is a, I'm throwing another wrench into the works here, but to get started with one of our authors for today, the American Ambrose Bierce, born in 1842, died in 1914, and probably best known for a work he published in 1911, The Devil's Dictionary. And the reason this may look like a wrench is one of the entries in his Devil's Dictionary is the entry aphorism, noun, pre-digested wisdom. <laughs> um, he clearly did not see aphorisms as uh, spiritual wisdom in the sense that uh, Gopnik is, is describing it. But what, what I think this gets us at, the name isn't the important thing here. And you can look at various writers who write short prose pieces. They may not call them aphorisms, but you recognize the aphorists among themselves by this 
stance of thought. And in an odd way, I think Ambrose Bierce really does fit in here as an aphorist, even though I'm sure he would not have used the term for himself. And I guess the reason I say that, if let me give you a couple of examples from the Devil's Dictionary of things that relate to ideas Nietzsche's interested in, for example. Truth uh, is defined truth, noun, an ingenious compound of desirability and appearance. Discovery of truth is the sole purpose of philosophy, which is the most ancient occupation of the human mind and has a fair prospect of exist existing with increasing activity to the end of time. What I think is aphoristic about his approach is he's claiming here to give definitions, uh, i.e., systematic answers, general statements, but the content of what his definition gives is anything but that. Mm -hmm. Or likewise, moral, another term important for Nietzsche, mm -hmm. adjective, conforming to a local and mutable standard of right. There we have the genealogy of morality. Having a quality of general expediency or patriotism, noun, Combustible rubbish ready to the torch of anyone ambitious to illuminate his name. <laughs> in Dr. Johnson's famous dictionary, patriotism is defined as the last resort of a scoundrel. With all the res due respect to an enlightened but inferior lexicographer, I beg to submit that it is the first. Hmm. That I think he may not be one of the go-to aphorists that we would look to, but I do think he has that... Stand, thought stance that Neumann is trying to get at, or, or Schlegel as well in the idea that it's deadly not to have a system, but it's deadly to have one too. Mm. And the only option we have as humans is you have to find a way to combine the two. You know, it, it, it strikes me, Pierce's Devil's Dictionary was published in 1911. I, I can't remember. Was he still alive then? Yeah, he died. 1914, I think. Well, you know, um, yeah. there's a similar book. Gustave Flaubert in the 1870s, over time, you know, publishing them a, a few at a time, he produced what he called the, the Dictionary of Received Ideas. That book wasn't published till 1911, so it's published the same year as Bierce. And both of them are, they have a lot in common with one of the, the books that we've discussed together already back in our, our second episode, William Blake's The Marriage of, of Heaven and Hell. So an important part of Blake's book is a section he calls The Proverbs of Hell. And, you know, it's a sort of parody of Enlightenment epigrams. And what they do is they preserve the form of this this statement that's supposed to be immediately and self-evidently true, that's supposed to produce that that response where someone reads it and there's nothing left to do but nod your head and say, true that. Prudence is an old maid courted by incapacity, stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I kind of check my impulse to, to spend the rest of the podcast talking about William Blake. But so what, what Bierce is, is, is doing participates in that tradition too. But it, it's interesting to me, you know, as, as, as I was listening to you just now, Bierce doesn't 
produce aphorisms that are formally similar to what we see coming out of Schlegel and Nietzsche. But in, in terms of their effect, as you were just explaining, they're similar. Am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's why I, I wanted to bring in this part of this uh, our podcast today, Virginia Woolf, who, who also I am going to try and argue, I think has a very aphoristic stance towards knowledge and understanding and in mm -hmm. some ways, even writing, although she doesn't write aphorisms, that, that what, what I want to look at is, is lectures presented in a way that looks maybe more systematic, but I think she is pushing our attention to that tension between the systematic and the specific that just will not fit. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd be happy enough to go there right now. And I happen to know that um, one of the books you you want to talk most about here with regard to Wolf are her her lectures that that she she put together and published as a room of one's own, right? Right. Yeah, and that's where the uh, aphorism, if I may call it that, that I started started off with today, it actually was not written as an aphorism. That is a line from the first pages of her room of one's own. At any rate, when a subject is highly controversial, and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. And I think in reading the book, I'm always interested in conversations about this book because I find it, it strikes me it's one of the underappreciated books because it's read against the grain she's trying to ride in, which is to stop us from coming to dogmatic conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I think she tries to get at in this, this opening is truth is a, an elusive thing. And I read this with students and they're often puzzled that she says, lies will flow from my lips. <laughs> and if you're reading this uh, and you think it is just straight academic prose, you're sort of wondering, she's going to lie? And uh, what she, I think she chooses a provocative word for mm -hmm. fiction, lying. Mm -hmm. Just make us stop and think about it. If she had just said fiction, we wouldn't probably stop in our tracks like we do when she says lies will flow from my lips. But she is doing that thing I think you hit on. There isn't one form that's common to aphorism, but common to all aphorism is the conviction that you have to apply form carefully and masterfully if you're going to get people not to fall into the trap of a dogmatic conclusion. In fact, Alan, I think, I think the aphorism contends both against dogma, that is, a, you know, a stable set of, you know, convictions, and also just conclusions themselves. So that I think the effective aphorist aims to keep us thinking when maybe we thought we didn't need to think about a particular question anymore. We already know what we think, or we already know what we're supposed to believe. And yep. that's an, in part what people who have, have written about aphorisms mean when they, they talk about it as a self-destabilizing form, right? 
you're, we're not supposed to read Ambrose Bierce and think, oh, yeah, Bierce is right and all those other people were just flat out wrong. Maybe if the aphorism has really done its work, we're going to be less likely to be that guy who, who knows that he knows, right? I think the aphorism as a form is committed to, well, let me sound like an academic for a second, epistemological humility. Like, let's recognize how much we don't really know. And, and how much we can't know, what the limits are of knowing, what the, the methods are of knowing. I just wanted to say here that that is, I think, exactly what Neumann wants to get at when he suggests this. Uh, instead of self-destabilizing, I, I, that's what I like about his, his idea of, of reciprocally destabilizing of two poles in the aphorism of, of the general and the specific or of the rational and the emotional. Yeah. 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 And you've got to find a way to keep both of those alive that they can't cancel each other out. They destabilize each other, but they, they, it becomes a bad aphorism if one cancels the other out. Well, sure. Sure. And cancels it out in the sense of obliterates it so it's not there anymore. But I, I, you know, I, I think this process is inscribed into the very nature of the form. And what I was going to invite you to do a, a moment ago, when you were suggesting that that it would be useful to include Wolf. Not an obvious choice, which makes it all the more exciting. She has something to say to her listeners about the thing that they asked her to come and do. You know the, the passage I mean, right? Mm -hmm. let's, let's hear that. And, 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 and tell everyone yeah. why you're thinking that that's a really useful thing for us to pause over. She begins, and uh, she gives a series of lectures uh, by invitation, that uh, she's asked to talk about women in fiction. And so she began, she says, when you asked me to speak about women in fiction, I sat down on the banks of a river and began to wonder what the words meant. She goes from there through several possibilities of interpreting it. Does this mean women in fiction or women in the fiction they write? Uh, and a number of things. And, and at the end, she concludes that the most interesting thing would be to try and see what connects all of these perspectives. Mm -hmm. And she continues though and says, but when I began to consider the subject in this last way, which seemed the most interesting, I soon saw that it had one fatal drawback. I should never be able to fulfill what is, I understand, the first duty of a lecturer, to hand you, after an hour's discourse, a nugget of pure truth to wrap up and keep on the mantelpiece forever. <laughs> I just want to underscore that last part, that last part, a nugget of pure truth to wrap up and keep on the mantelpiece forever. Alan, you have more to say, in it, but can I, can I just gloss that, that, that phrase to, no, to say, so it's not a nugget. It's not a, like a solid piece of gold that's obviously, you know, valuable. It's not pure and it's not meant to sit there on display, right? It's something that continues to gnaw at us. And, and, and trouble us so that we keep thinking about it. She, in a way, you're, you're jumping to the, net, to the conclusion she wants you to, or not a conclusion, you're thinking this through because she presents this as if she accepts this demand that she's failing as a lecturer because lecturers give you pure nuggets of truth. And she can tell she won't be able to do that. 
this is one of the places where I, I notice with first-time readers of Wolf, they often don't recognize that she's being ironic, and this goes throughout the text. So I think irony, for example, is often a key component of aphorism. Mm -hmm. Gopnik says humor and, and laughter, but I find most of them are not terribly funny, but they are often very witty and ironic. And it's one of the tactics that these writers use to, to throw you off balance and make you think more carefully. So if a lecturer can't do that, what can a lecturer do? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why she then adopts this position. Well, I'm going to merge fiction and fact. Lies will flow from my lips, but maybe in the end something will come of this. Because I do believe she's not trying to upset her position. She wants to destabilize only to the degree that she gets you to give up cherished fixed positions and consider a wider range of options when looking at something as controversial as gender. So another good example, I think, she actually comes back to that nugget of pure truth, by the way, in a kind of funny passage. Maybe I can add this here. Oh, good. good, good. She goes to the British Museum to um, check books where she can read about the history of women to try and figure out why women didn't write as much as men wrote, why in many periods they didn't write at all. And she's sitting looking through the books and has been noticing a young student in the carol next to hers. She writes, the student by my side, for instance, who was copying assiduously from a scientific manual was, I felt sure, extracting pure nuggets of the essential ore every 10 <laughs> minutes or so. His little grunts of satisfaction indicated as much. But if, unfortunately, one has had no training in a university, the question, far from being shepherded into its pen, shepherded into its pen flies like a frightened flock hither and thither. I love the ways that she gets you, again, back to this pure nugget of essential ore. She states it as if she accepts it, but it's clear, if you have an ear for her irony, that she's not accepting this for a moment. The very fact that every 10 minutes or so you could do this suggests that we're not talking about truth here. We're talking about information off the internet to, nowadays, we would say, yeah. uh, at best. But she also makes true that there's prejudice involved, that she knows she's ridiculing the student with his grunts of satisfaction. As a matter of fact, it gets even worse. She comments on him not having shaved this last fortnight and having a rather inexpensive tie. <laughs> so we get that merging here of, on the one hand, we want to have, we want to get it knowledge at, at a general understanding of some real problematic thing, but feeling gets in the way. We keep being brought back to the details, the reality of this moment and this time. You know, Alan, I think it also matters. Another great passage. I mean, here's Wolf giving a lecture where she's supposed to provide her audience with information. But even here, there's a very poetic quality to her language. And all of these, these figures prove dynamic once, once you pause over them. For example, it's not incidental that the student she sees in the carol next to her is copying assiduously from a scientific manual, right? He's 
recording mm. hard truths that are unproblematic, which is exactly the opposite of the kind of work that we do in literary study, right? Can I, can I interject here? It should be the opposite of what we do in scientific study, too. I think <laughs> Charles, Charles Darwin is one of the best examples of that, that, that one of the things that I always marvel at reading on the origin of species is his ability to present an incredible system that accounts for so much, and yet he never tires of stopping to note where the data doesn't fit, where he's not sure he's got it right because this contradicts the theory. Um, and he never tries to cover it up. Mm -hmm. Unlike his contemporary Herbert Spencer, about whom one of their friends joked, Spencer's idea of tragedy is a fact that doesn't fit his system. <laughs> but, you know, short of that, the sciences are information-based disciplines, and it requires a lot of memorization to pursue chemistry, or, or even, at least in the early stages, physics. But literature isn't an information-based discipline, and the experience of literature for readers isn't about information. You may know where and when Virginia Woolf was born, and where she went to school, and what she liked for breakfast, but it's not finally going to help you understand what she's arguing in a room of one's own. And you know, one of the hallmarks of the kind of modernist writing that, that we've been talking about is that it, it, it doesn't permit you a detached and unproblematic relationship with the text. You have to commit. You as the reader have to do a lot of work. You have to imagine, you know, as much as as we can as far as we can with the writer, but but ultimately the, the text is going to take you to different places beyond the writer's control. I think a writer like Wolf is completely alive to that. And I, I think this passage that you picked out, which I, I think is really it's really important in general, but it's really useful for us. Uh, she's she's owning that. In 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 fact I think it resonates in some ways with the very first sentence of Nietzsche's genealogy of morality. We are unknown to ourselves, we knowers. And mm. part of what we learn when we engage these texts is we learn things about ourselves that we wouldn't otherwise have seen. She also, like, I, again, I, I think that Elias Canetti, one of the things that probably suggests to him that, they are, that all these Afros know each other, is uh, the kind of humility you were talking about before, and uh, which includes a willingness to make observations and take serious observations that aren't what you necessarily want to find. One of my favorite ones in, in Wolf is, and it's a wonderful image where I think she, she captures a real truth, but immediately lets us know it's not, you can't take this in any simple way. Uh, she, this is from chapter two, two from the second lecture. She says, women have served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of a man at twice his natural size. <laughs> Without that power. So if we wanted to stop there, this is again one of those instances where patriarchal society uses women. But. Wolf doesn't want to stop there. Without that power, 
of reflecting him back twice his natural size, probably the earth would still be swamp and jungle. The glories of all our wars would be unknown. Uh, here again, she problematizes. She could have said the glories of all our civilizations would right. be unknown, but she, right. picks, she picks a negative to throw in there. Mm -hmm. But acknowledging fully that these are the things that have moved humanity forward, like it or not, uh, she continues. We should still be scratching the outlines of deer on the remains of mutton bones and bartering flints for sheepskins or whatever simple ornament took our unsophisticated taste. So she would not be delivering these lectures and fighting for the conditions that women need to be able to write if over the course of the history of humanity, women hadn't served for centuries as looking glasses possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice his natural size. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, to talk about a magic mirror in this way, right, is already a, a problematic trope, right? We've paused several times already in our conversation over this, this phrase that I like to use about self-destabilizing, but man, this, this passage that, that you've just read is a really good example the glories of all of our wars, right? Not our arts or anything else, but our wars, as you pointed out. Here, here again, I, I want to jump in and, and I agree if we can, instead of saying self, say reciprocally destabilizing. <laughs> okay. okay. But, but you know, there's a risk in, in writing this way. And that risk, as, as we know, most readers of this book will, will just speed right through the the passage. Absolutely. But the, the more carefully you read, the more slowly you read, the richer it becomes and the less comforting it becomes, the more exciting it becomes. Another quality I think that A Room of One's Own has that brings it into, the, into contact with the aphorism is Serious aphorists usually publish their aphorisms in collections and, and they group them in some way mm -hmm. or other. And in one of our earlier episodes, I, or actually I think in two of them, we mentioned it, this uh, image from Rumi, the poet Rumi, of the blind men discovering the elephant and the one who says, oh, an elephant is like a rope because he's touching the tail. And another one says he's, an elephant is like a fan because he's touching the ear and like a wall, that they are, the aphorists have this conviction that the only way you're going to begin to get at anything like objectivity is if you take all of the things they say relative to each other. And what you just said about Wolf, I think, is exactly that, that if you take any one sentence, you can make almost anything you want of the book. Nietzsche's the same mm. way. But she goes to great pains to, in a way, answer that assertion that I began with, that at any rate, when a subject is highly controversial and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. And she takes, in many ways, a very Darwinian approach to this at one point saying it's, it was absurd to blame any class or any sex as a whole. Great bodies of people are never responsible for mm -hmm. what they do. 
They are driven by instincts which are not within their control. They too, the patriarchs, the professors, had endless difficulties, terrible drawbacks to contend with. So she does not, she does not even here see this as simple, that, that whatever it is that is wrong with the balance between males and females in society, both halves are subject to forces they don't control. Mm-hmm. So you need to keep that general idea in mind, but on the other hand, not lose sight of the fact that there are specific things that happen that we would want to change. But the two always have to be seen connected. Yeah. Wolf was an incredibly interesting feminist voice, not just for her time, but for ours. But she isn't dogmatic. She's not, she's not doctrinaire. And she's not interested in making a case for the importance of women's voices or women's writing in, in that um, competitive way. Like in, in order to build women up, she needed to tear, to tear men down. Wolf is never predictable. And, uh, you know, to, to go back to the, the Wolf passage that you started us with, where she says to her audience, I'm not going to be able to meet your expectations. I'm not going to give you that nugget of pure truth that you can wrap up and put in your pocket and be satisfied that it's done with, right? She doesn't want her audience to be like that student next to her assiduously copying from a scientific manual. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, I, th- I think, Alan, and I'm, I'm delighted by your, your suggestion that we, we talk about Wolf. She doesn't write in aphoristic form. And yet, there are these luminous moments that appear frequently in her novels as well as uh, her critical work, such as this book, A Room of One's Own, that absolutely display the properties of what of this, this modern tradition of the aphorism that we've been tracing. I think in part what made me initially look at her was the suggestion from Canetti that the great aphorists all read as if they knew each other well. And I've often found that's one of the ways I'm drawn to different thinkers too, that that I love reading Lucretius, I love reading Nietzsche. Mm. And then I find, that's interesting, Montaigne is, reads very well alongside these two, and Wolf does too. And I think part <laughs> of it is that you, you have some sense that something about their intellectual stance connects these people. And I see that, actually, I'm grateful to you for bringing Dorothy Parker in here too, because I had initially thought of her as primarily writing just witticisms and some beautiful ones at that too. But some of the things you found in her to me strike me as in fact having this suspicious conviction about knowing things that yes, it's worth trying, but only if you're willing to always keep all of the balls in play. Mm. There is a hell of a distance between wisecracking and wit. Wit has truth in it. Wisecracking is simply calisthenics with words. You know, 
Virginia Woolf could be witty, but it, it's not the quality that, I mean, she could be, but it, it's, it's never her default setting. What Parker reminds us of here is that, you know, okay, wisecracking doesn't, doesn't take you anywhere. It's, it's, it's funny for a moment. It's, you know, like simply demonstrating your, your skill with, with words. But real wit, she says, has truth in it. I also like very much that calisthenics of words because I think it's one of the things that maybe is fairly leveled at bad aphorists like in the you mentioned in the 18th century people were skeptical of them that just saying something in a provocative and witty way doesn't make it an aphorism that that the that the that the aphorisms that Neumann is looking at and and that we've been trying to follow is somehow leading up to Nietzsche or being influenced by Nietzsche are ones that do have a deep conviction that, that this is about the desire to know and the acceptance of the limits imposed on us as humans yeah to ever know anything so you have to keep all of that in play and if you give up any part of it then then uh, you're bound to become a dog dogmatist mm. well you know i go back to to that famous line from alexander pope True wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. The idea is that, oh yeah, I've always known this to be true, but, mm -hmm. you know, but this writer has said it in a very clever way, a very witty way. Calisthenics with words. I think the aphorisms that, that we've been talking about, this modern tradition, you don't ever read it and think, Oh, yeah. I've always thought that. There's something troubling about it. Something that, again, I know this word is something of a cliche for, for those of us who talk about the modern arts, but destabilizing, troubling the foundation under our feet, suddenly we're not so sure of ourselves. And that seems to me one of the great accomplishments of the modern aphorism. Yeah. But I don't think that, I mean, I, I love Dorothy Parker's writing. I think she's really smart. And in, in terms of the development of 20th century feminism, a really important voice. But typically, she tends to work by offering something that seems at first brush, like an 18th century epigram. You know, what off was thought, but near so well expressed. But you finish reading it, and, and all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, this is messier than I thought, right? Uh, and sometimes it's funny. And, and sexier than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, beauty is only skin deep, she says, like echoing this thing that, you know, all nice people have always thought, right? Beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes clean to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> you, you pause over that. So what what does she mean by ugly? I don't think she, she means just somebody who's not pleasant to look at. Or you, you're yeah. talking about sexy. The 18th century taught us that brevity is the soul of wit. Dorothy Parker writes, brevity is the soul of lingerie. 
Well, that doesn't take us to a deep philosophical point, but it, it, it does give us an occasion to think about how, how language works and how truth statements work. And what we get a lot of in, in Dorothy Parker, and frankly, Alan, I don't, I don't ever really see this in Virginia Woolf. She's, she's basically riffing on commonplaces. You know, sort of like what Flaubert did. We haven't talked about Flaubert's Dictionary of Received Ideas, but it's it's that kind of impulse. Mm -hmm. So you problematize, in, in Parker's case, you problematize what people think they know by ringing a small formal change on a familiar statement. What I'm unsure of with her is whether she wanted to go beyond the wittiness of that, uh, the given statement. So I love, I love her uh, brevity is the soul of lingerie. And I suppose in the end, if we do want to take it as a kind of serious riff on it, that it, that it in a certain sense does bring the general back to the specific, that we would like to think that we are rational human beings, but in fact, uh, most of us are unable to resist the charms of such brevity for instinctive reasons, not for irrational reasons. Oh, nice job, Professor Swenson. <laughs> Bringing the general back to the specific, you said. But, you know, sometimes there's a real political edge to it. Like an, another oft-repeated Dorothy Parker comment is heterosexuality. Heterosexuality is not normal. It's just common. And uh, yeah. you sort of feel like that word common has an extra resonance to it, right? So that it doesn't simply mean ordinary, but unreflective or undevelopment or undeveloped. But she'll often say things that, that can get us to think more about how writing works, but also how the compressed form of aphoristic statement works. I can't write five words, but that I change seven. That one reminds me a lot of uh, last week's discussion about Carl Krauss and H.L. Mencken, mm -hmm. who, uh, especially Krauss, his conviction that there are some writers who can write in only 20 pages what it takes me all of two to say. <laughs> There's a little chest thumping there, but, but true, right? Mm. And Neil Parker has more than a little in common with, with Krauss and Mencken in that she was a kind of public intellectual. She was a journalist. Yeah. And she wrote for a living, so she had to be productive. Yeah. But she's writing for a general audience. She also makes me think of another figure we've thought of trying to include that it's maybe hard to find the exact aphoristic moments in, but Susan Sontag is another public intellectual that I think there are aspects of her thought that belong here. Sontag would be a, a good, more modern example, although she was more self-consciously intellectual than Parker, right? I think the, the point I would want to make about Dorothy Parker is that she's not formally innovative like Virginia Woolf or like the other writers who we've read together, but she understands 
the impulse of the aphorist and and at her her best her her witticisms as they're commonly regarded say a lot more than they seem to at first and they're not merely witty they have as as she she wanted them to have truth in them and and not a truth that was known to you before you you had done the reading are there any um aphorisms that we wanted to get to today that we have left out. I had a few here from Elias Canetti. He, he very much, Neumann saw him as, as uh, one of the most important contemporary aphorists during Neumann's lifetime. And a lot of it does get to how we know or how we deal with thought in the world around us. Some of the short ones that are kind of interesting. He writes, Cowardly, truly cowardly, is only someone who is afraid of his memories. Oh, very nice. And kind of in a related vein, everything one has forgotten cries out for help in dreams. But he's somebody that that bears looking into more. He... he published two collections of notes. He doesn't call them aphorisms, but they're commonly received in literary circles as, as aphoristic writing. He's a, he's a big one. It's funny how Kennedy get, is more often read by people interested in his political thought than, I might be wrong about this, it, maybe it's just the, the accidents of the people I know in, in modernist studies, but... But he's a, a really powerful writer. I just I wondered if, if it, in some ways, too, his reception is colored by the fact that I remember when we first started talking about Kennedy, he's relatively contemporary. I mean, he, he died in 1994, but he lived uh, between cultures. So he wrote in German, he wrote in English. I think he wrote in other languages occasionally, too. And I don't know if that's had an influence, too, on depending on what language you speak, how you encounter Kennedy, which again, I think, in, interestingly ties into the, the, the formal issues you were raising too, of um, what forms yeah. aphoristic thought takes. Well, you know, we're, we're getting to the end of our, our, our time here, and this is probably the stuff for a long conversation, but one of the things that the internet has help develop is a, a growing popular interest in short forms. Now, I think this is in part because our, our entire culture is increasingly ADD, but I, I think it also has to do with our distraction. So, yeah, um, you know, much of it technology produced, much of it having to do just with the way that we all live. You know, there's just too much for anyone to do in the course of a day. But the compression that an aphorism achieves and the way in which at its best, there's a long fuse on a good aphorism. You read it and even if you, you, you sense right away, well, that's smart. It might be minutes later, hours later, or days later or more that it sort of goes off in your head and you go back to it. This at least has been my experience. And, and in going back to it, 
it's hard to believe I'm looking at the same aphorism. I recognize that these are the same words on the page, but I feel it in a different way. You know, one of the thinkers that that I found myself thinking about in anticipation of, of this podcast was the Frenchman Georges Bataille, a writer of the first half of the 20th century and another devotee of, of Nietzsche. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable really how often you, know, you, you start thinking about the writers of aphorisms in the modern era and suddenly discover there's some big connection to Nietzsche, right? For example, H.L. Mencken wrote the first book in English on, on Nietzsche. Well, Bataille wrote on, on Nietzsche too. And I'll just offer one, one, of, one comment from him. And maybe then I guess it's time for us to sign off. I believe the truth has only one face, that of a violent contradiction. I believe the truth has only one face, that of a violent contradiction. And what strikes me about that, that comment here is that the experience of, of writing that I expect to be violent is sort of like jars us out of our, our comforting expectations, these ideas that we already have in place about the world. And that, as we were just discussing with Dorothy Parker, it gathers its force by, by basically turning on its head the, the old adage that, that we'd either been living by or pretended to live by, right? Beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes deep to the bone, that kind of thing. I think that's one of the things that at times I've found, we've had this discussion too, reading contemporary aphorists, that there is a link between the short form and contemporary culture in which uh, so much of what we do now must be expressible in 144 <laughs> characters or um, has to be done very, very rapidly. And the thing that I think the Nietzschean aphorism or this aphorism that begins in the early 19th century, late 18th century, could contribute to that is, is the necessity for maintaining the balance between the general and the specific, the rational and the, the emotional. And we came across a couple of these writers where there, there did seem to be a kind of defensive rejection of the long mm -hmm. in favor of the short. And that, again, I think is one of the places where the best aphorism doesn't see itself as the only form in which one can write or speak, but rather a necessary contribution in a balance so that the aphorisms of Sarah Manguzo don't negate the value of Tolstoy's War and Peace. There are things that can't be done in two lines. Um, and keeping them in play with each other is important. And I think if we wanted to, to consider the role of, of aphoristic writing in fiction, that would be a, a challenging project. I, I could think of Marcel Proust, who deliberately and self-consciously, I don't know what, what's up with me in the French this time, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's very little plot in, in Proust's, you know, seven volume In Search of Lost Time. But what plot there is, is basically an occasion for him to think about how life works. But mostly, 
Like when you when you're thinking about Virginia Woolf, you went to her nonfiction. And there are obviously anywhere in, in Wolf you can find things to quote that don't necessarily need the context of the, the work of fiction to resonate. But I'm I'm wondering about this too, because in my reading at least, Alan, the aphoristic form is most powerful in poetry. And arguably the kind of the kind of reading that we did with, say, Sarah Manguso, I'd be prepared to to defend that that her language there is, is working like poetic language rather than expository language or philosophical language. This will give us good material for our next and final podcast when we come back to Nietzsche. You and I don't entirely agree on this. And one of the things that interests me, and I think we should talk about next time, is we've been talking about this short, brief form and linking it to the spirit of Nietzschean aphorism. But the book that he called the touchstone for everything that was his, The Genealogy of Morality, consists of very long aphorisms, some of them several pages long. And as a matter of fact, none of them are mm -hmm. two lines, mm -hmm. three lines. So it raises an interesting question then, just what is this form? What is it that, that mattered to him about it and that became so tremendously influential for others, for Georges Bataille, for H.L. Mencken, I'm sure Karl Krauss, probably Wolford read Nietzsche too. Certainly Wallace Stevens had. I'm looking forward to next time already. Thanks everyone for sharing this with us. Thank you. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Research.